Please join me in welcoming back Professor Lips for the final in his three-part series on Israel's neighbors and urge him to wear his CSP hat at least in Tel Aviv. Ari is a good entertainer. I think he went into the wrong profession. Uh, the, um, just a few very short announcements. Um, I've enjoyed Orange County people so much that in August this year, mid-August this year, I will be the scholar with uh, Rabbi Rick Steinberg to Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Um, if you haven't been to Israel with Ari, that's the top priority, even if Ari's not there. But um, it's a nice arena. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia is a very important realm. I deal with 10 countries in Europe. Many, many years ago, from 1990, during the university vacations, I used to go as a scholar to various countries, and every two, three years, I add uh, another region. Uh, if any of you are interested, contact Rick Steinberg, Rabbi Rick Steinberg, Richard Steinberg of uh, Shira Malot. Um, it would be lovely uh, to have all of you, well, not except those who are going with Ari, of course. Um, but it's uh, <laughs> August, so it's, it's mid-August, mid-August. Yeah, so you can go to the Baltics and then you go to Israel and then you can, I'll, I'll invite you for dinner in uh, Tel Aviv. Um, so that's... That's right. The first night of the October group, um, I'll be meeting you in Tel Aviv. Brendan, myself, so that'll be very nice. Just a, a one note about the program. The uh, Saturday night program coming, uh, Jewishness of the Jewish State, is a repetition of the session that I did in a Temple Bethel on Tuesday, January the 21st. If I see any of you and I knew, know you were there, on the spot I'll change the topic. <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't want to depress anyone. I mean, the, the Jewishness of the Jewish state is a year-long course, so I could give very much a different emphasis, but I, I, there would be a repetition. The other point I just want to make clear, because it, it obviously does overlap to a certain extent. On Sunday um, at Temple Judea, 2 p.m., I'm giving a lecture on the ultra-Orthodox. Now, because I've spoken in that earlier session that I mentioned on the Jewishness of the Jewish people, there is some repetition. So maybe 10 minutes will be a repetition. The ultra-Orthodox one will not deal with modern orthodoxy, not dealing with reform, conservative, any of those. It deals only with the ultra-Orthodox. It starts very much in Europe. I look at the difference between the Misnagdim and the Hasidim, the difference between Lithuania on the one hand and Latvia and, uh, and Lithuania on the one hand, sorry, and Poland and Ukraine on the other hand. So just to know that, you know, you will be hearing some similar things and, um, and, and that's just how it is. If you want. <laughs> so... Uh, when, when I was trying to work out which topics I'd choose from the Middle East, I, I faced a, a very serious problem. From an Israeli perspective, uh, when talking about the Middle East, one would talk maybe about Iran, certainly Egypt. We signed, uh, uh, Menachem Begin signed the peace treaty with Anwar Sadat and received the Nobel Peace Prize for that. Jordan, certainly an agreement in 1994. 
Um, but uh, it, was, it was a difficult issue because I didn't want to make it an Israeli topic. I, I, want to, I want us to understand the Arab world. So that's why it seemed very important to at least put Syria in. But what countries does one choose? How do you choose and, and how do you take a topic? And because Ari only allowed me to give three topics, I wanted to give seven. And he said under no condition. Um, the, the one I really, the topic that I love most is what I'm talking about today, Jordan. Of all the Arab countries that I deal with, many, many years ago when I, I wasn't yet in so much in the Middle Eastern realm, I was looking at leaders around the world. And uh, on uh, tomorrow night, Friday night, I deal with from Truman to Trump, fascinated by leadership not so much from only the political perspective, but how they influence societies. That was the part that really interested me. And as I was going through the various leaders, I was coming up with some really tough cases in the Middle East, pretty violent people. Um, Nasser, great leader, but violent to his people. Uh, Husni Mubarak, Morsi, Al-Sisi, you know, you go through the leaders. Uh, the, the leaders in many of the countries are pretty miserable. Then I came up with the Jordanian leadership. And this really made me feel very good. Because this was kind of a language that I could understand. It was a, a, world, a world concept. Some of the, the things which were important to them were important to me. So this is the country that I'm going to deal with. Modern Jordan with a fascinating background. And if one ever uses the term, the politics of survival, which I use fairly often, this is the country where politics of survival is probably most profound. Very, very small, vulnerable country, placed with neighbors who are all without doubt problematic. We're problematic for Jordan, we'll talk about it. Syria's problematic for Jordan. Iraq is problematic for Jordan. Not far away is Saudi Arabia problematic for, for Jordan. So it's a country which is surrounded in a tough region, very tough region. You know, Israel's got the coast, very important. Jordan's only got the Gulf of Aqaba. And if any of you have been down there in Eilat, you know, it's a little sliver of land, a small port, um, and that's tough. The other problem about uh, Jordan, as I'll elaborate, it's got no natural resources. And I'll go through some of the challenges which they've had over the years. Um, but at the same time, one has to um, be very honest about what Jordan is. And that is on a visit uh, with an Israeli group to Jordan, which was a very uh, interesting trip because there was a, uh, an Armenian guide who had lived in Bethlehem, who was now living in Jordan. And we became good friends. Really, you know, sometimes you have a tour guide that the tour guide sort of wants to be on the side, but this particular fellow and I, we really had wonderful, wonderful chats. And, you know, I was saying, to, we were discussing the Israeli-Jordanian relationship, and he did something very interesting, because he didn't want me to be fooled. He took me to a book stand, and I'd been looking for a map. And the only map that I found where Israel or the Middle East is seen is this one in German. And he very deliberately opened the map. Ari, 
Mike Dollinger not only does things with, he doesn't do anything with maps. He does a whole lot of other good stuff, but he doesn't do a thing with maps, so just tell him. And then I opened this map, and where Israel is, it says Palestine. This is a, a recent map, a recent map. In Jordanian society, the fact that this was at an official book stand, it wasn't just one of the little ones on the side of a street, it was an official book stand of where a lot of the Jordanian government controls literature very, very clo closely, as in all Arab countries. Palestine is there and not the state of Israel. So that's important to recognize. So with my favorite country, I also have to admit some of the things that are going on. Just to give an update on population, once again, how statistics are presented, very important. And in looking at statistics, we all know we have to question them, we have to reanalyze them, we have to put them in the context of the country or the leaders who are putting the statistics forward. The CIA World Factbook, fact which is good, the CIA do a very, very good job on uh, summaries of countries, but I was surprised to find this. It says that the Jordanian population is 10 million, 69% of all Jordanian citizens. Now, that figure cannot be correct because the Palestinian population is somewhere between 55 to 70%. So something's gone wrong. And what's gone wrong? Jordan is tied up with a challenge which is just unbelievable. And that is, it wants to present to the, the big wide world that it's a Jordanian majority society. But the reality is that although many of the people defined as Jordanian are in fact Palestinians whose Palestinian identity is stronger than their Jordanian identity. Just as in Israel, we have to say, if we're looking at Israeli society, we can't just give the, the, the large figure of Israel, 10 million more or less, without saying there's a gap between the Jews and the Arabs. That's the reality of the society. So here there's a very, very interesting situation, which in a sense, sometimes statistics show by hiding information where the problem is. Because if they'd said 30%, 40% Jordanians, 65% Palestinian, or 55% Palestinian, whatever it was, it wouldn't have brought up this kind of issue. So that's one component. The other component about the Jordanian demographic issue is that it is the only country in the Middle East, bar none, which willingly accepts refugees. Jordan is filled with Syrian refugees. Half a million, 700,000, no one knows the exact figure. And it's accepted them. In a country which is totally overwhelmed economically. So it doesn't matter they're a big country, large area, have, you know, have a 5%, 10% refugee population. Uh -uh. Jordan does it, very important. And the Iraqi refugees, once again, just to take the figures that we have here, the Iraqi refugees are about 2%, but 
probably much higher. These figures are a year and a half out of date, probably much more. There are a lot of these refugees, when you go around Jordan and you're trying to look at the population, you begin to realize that this country, and this is what made me attracted to Jordan, this country is one of the very, very few countries which really looks at the Arab plight, Palestinians, Iraqis, Syrians, other groups who in crisis in the Middle East and has taken them in, not always to its own advantage. So this is really a very powerful uh, kind of issue. Who are the Jordanians? And now we have to go back a little bit to history, to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia historically and to until today is a totally tribal society. We, however you look at Saudi society, all about tribes. And the uh, Ibn Saud family, which was the strongest tribe, and eventually, many decades ago, th that tribe became the main tribe. And by the way, there's intertribal marriages, so the dominant tribe gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The whole country is basically a tribal society. Sunni majority, somewhere in the region of 85% are Sunni, about 15% are Shi'i, of, an, of a different tribe. Until about three or four years ago, the Shi'i minority was totally oppressed. The last few years, things have got a bit better. They allowed a few Shi'is to lecture at universities, allowed Shi'is to doctors to become more active, but it's still very oppressive for the Shi'is. And the reason is not that the Jordanians are anti-Shi'i, but in the Arab world, as I mentioned in my very first lecture on, on Iran, the Arab world is totally divided by the Sunni and the Shi'is. And Jordan, for its survival, worked out a long time ago that although they have problem with other Sunni tribes, it's better to be part of the Sunni majority than any other kind of group. And therefore, um, uh, this, is, this is what we, we understand. Now, let's, let's go back, sorry, to focus on the, on the Hashemites. The Hashemites are one of the tribes, small. But the Hashemites had something which was very problematic in Saudi history, and that is the Hashemites found themselves in the area of Mecca and Medina. And in Islam, priority, Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem. So therefore, the Hashemites, who weren't a very large tribe, threatened in terms of uh, theological uh, uh, strength, the uh, Ibn Saud family, the largest family, and those tribes were in, tension, in, in conflict. The Hashemites are politically astute. And just before the First World War, and for those of you who've, who know the movie Lawrence of Arabia, which is a good movie, seven Oscars, but rather distorted, it makes the story of Saudi Arabia seem as if it's about Lawrence and the British, which is good British imperialism, but not quite honest. Be it as it may, that movie really indicates something very interesting about the tribal nature of Saudi Arabia. The Hashemites in the First World War, realizing that they were in a very vulnerable position, placed where they were in the Hejaz, the Mecca and Medina area, and not being a strong group, allied with the British, and became very, very loyal to the British, 
fighting against the Turks and the Germans in Saudi Arabia during the First World War. Now, after the First World War, the British didn't want to stick around there. They had no real reason to be Saudi Arabia. Remember, Saudi Arabia only becomes important in the 1930s and 40s when oil is found. You have Roosevelt, you have Churchill, all the leaders of the world suddenly uh, jumping to the whistle of the Saudis because they had oil in, their er in their, that area. So the Hashemites are in a bad way. And the British, who are quite sophisticated imperialists, by virtue of the fact that they give land to anyone who they want to, not necessarily asking the local population. Global imperialist policy. The British do it, the Germans do it, the French do it, all of them do it. Saw there was an area which was called, which began to be called Transjordan. The area on the other side of the Jordan River. Almost no one was there. Totally desert. Nothing going for it. And the British looked at the Hashemite family, um, went to the leader, and he had four sons, and allocated land of which didn't work out for the two of the sons. Syria, they couldn't claim. Iraq, they couldn't claim. But the fact that no one was there in the area of Transjordan was given to Abdullah, Abdullah I, who takes over Transjordan. He's a tribal leader, suddenly moving with his Hashemite members that identified with him. They move into the area of Transjordan, and there's nothing there. But the British had, a, had sympathy for the Hashemites. The British realized that the Hashemites had given their lives for the British cause in the First World War, and therefore the British become the patrons. How do you become a patron? In 1922, the British tell the League of Nations, because the world is all getting be, been divided up after the First World War, after lots of negotiation, lots of peace treaties and things, that uh, this area is now for the Hashemites. And the, the, the League of Nations agrees to it. Okay, this is a, an agreement, and the United Nations takes it on, um, and therefore you establish this particular group. So how do they survive? Abdullah's looking around and uh, wondering what he's going to do. And the British, once again, kindly, because British imperialism, if you look at it in India, for example, not so kind, Palestine, not so kind, it's Israel. But the, the British were, was essentially kind and started to help the Hashemites at least in one realm. And that was to develop the Hashemite people, tribal, village people, into an army. And that became the Arab Legion, which of all the armies in the Middle East was without doubt the best because they had British officers. In fact, there's an amazing story of the head, the British head of the Arab Legion, Glub Pasha. Glub Pasha's around there from the 1930s to 1956. He writes three wonderful books about his experiences there. And um, 
Glebansha had got a group of British officers who trained the Arab Legion, very, very sophisticated, and many of the senior Jordanian officers uh, went to study at Sandhurst, you know, the, the big military, top military college uh, of, of Britain, um, so much so that for quite an extended time until the present, the many members of the Jordanian elite speak to each other in English. English is a high-status language. Um, King Hussein himself, who I'll speak about just now, uh, studied it, was at Sandhurst uh, before he was brought back to the, uh, to the Hashemite kingdom. Now, King Abdullah is this local leader. He's got an army, very poorly developed agriculture, just to jump ahead a little bit. If you go along the Jordan Valley, and you'll see that Jordan has green fields on the other side. You've probably been told the green fields came about because Israeli agricultural experts taught the Jordanian population how to make that area look green. So if you're traveling around Jordan and you say you heard a lecture and it was all about desert, and you say I was telling a big lie, it's originally desert, the Israeli government, for its own particular purposes, wanting to make friends with the Jordanians, helped uh, make that area look very nice. But there's not a lot to see in Jordan. How many people have been to Jordan, by the way? Okay, good chunk. Wow, a good chunk. So, so you see, there's not a hell of a lot there to see. You see Roman ruins, which aren't very good for nationalism. Because if you speak about the Romans all the time, where are the Jordanians? So the Jordanians have quite a lot of problem, as you know there. And then you've got the Nabataeans in the south, and that's not so good for modern Jordanian uh, nationalism also. You, don't know how, you know how excited Israel gets when they see a coin from 4,000 years ago with a Hebrew letter on. You know, I mean, it's a big business in the world that we're in, proving that we were there before. This is big stuff in the Middle East. The Jordanians, however, have something in their favor, and that is that they have a direct family tree which goes back to the Prophet Muhammad. Now, this gives them yichas. This gives them a status that in the Arab world is, cannot be repeated anywhere else. You find there are many, many Arab families all around the Middle East who have these family trees, but it's quite hard just we know in Judaism, to get connected to the Davidic line, you know, gives you a place sort of next to the Almighty in heaven. You know, I hope I'm not sounding sacrilegious, but you know what I mean. Very, very important place. So that's very important. That gives them status. They have an army. They have status of being connected to Muhammad because they were living in Mecca and Medina, so one can understand that as being valid. And the country is a very poorly developed country, which until it receives its independence in 1946. 1946, it becomes independent, no longer under British control. And then it slowly starts to move forward. It starts to move forward for a number of reasons. King Abdullah I, uh, this rural man, looks around and sees and sees something important happening in the Middle East. And one of the things he begins to understand, that because he, as a Sunni leader, had historical conflicts with the other Sunnis of Saudi Arabia, 
And he's looking what's happening in Syria in that period, 1946 and onwards. And he's seeing what's happening in Lebanon, which is a chaos of subgroups. Begins to ask a question, maybe there's another way of doing it. And therefore he brings up the idea and starts a negotiation on many different levels, some of which we know today, I don't think we know the whole story, which is, let us sign a, sign a pact with the Jews. Who are the Jews? The Jews are those people who are building those kibbutzim, which seems a pretty strange organization, but they're obviously doing well. Jews are bringing in people. Jews are producing things. Jews, Rittenberg in Haifa is developing a, a, um, electricity stuff. The water development is already going, even before the creation of the state. Both of the countries are under British control, so you can actually start talking. And therefore, as the state of Israel gets closer, in November 1947, the UN partition plan, King Abdallah realizes that his survival will be based on something which is a dangerous policy, and that is to make an agreement with the enemy. And he only does it for one reason, because he doesn't trust the Arab world. And not only does he trust the Arab world, but he's a dreamer, and his long-term goal, which he doesn't say directly, but we know about it later, was to establish a greater Jordan, like the greater Syria, sometimes the term is used greater Syria, sometimes it's greater Jordan. The Syrians have the greater Syrian policy. The Jordanians have a great area that they want to uh, control. And Abdullah believed that somewhere along the line, if he plays his political cards carefully, he might not just have this little bit of desert transjordan, which is a no-win situation, but with time, he maybe can take over Lebanon, he can take over Syria, which in those days had adequate water supplies. And because he's already made an agreement with the Jews, maybe he can take over Israel, but he'll give us autonomy. Sounds a good deal. What goes wrong is essentially the following. King Abdullah, at the peak of his planning, after he's already met Golda Meir on two occasions, one occasion dressed as a man, because how could a woman negotiate? He negotiated with Golda. And uh, quite a lot of contacts between the various underground Israeli movements. King Abdullah is sort of working on this plan. It's going quite well. And he's got a diamond in front of his eye. And the diamond is obviously Jerusalem. He didn't think that Jerusalem would ever be divided. Jerusalem, third most holy place. He's given up Mecca. He's given up Medina, which the Saudis have taken, Ibn Saud family. But now at least he's got Jerusalem. And therefore it seemed a very, very good plan. Unfortunately, when King Abdullah I went up to Temple Mount, he was assassinated by one of the leaders of the Husseini Palestinian faction. The Husseinis are made up of two large tribes, extended families. The Nashashibis, who historically have been pro-Jordanian, 
and the Husseinis, who's historically being pro-Iraqi and Egyptian, and King Abdullah is assassinated. Now comes another problem. In Arab society, Arab monarchical society, not Arab military society, but in Arab monarchical society, the bloodline is unbelievably important. Father to son, father to older son. Big stuff in the Arab world. The problem is that the older son of King Abdullah is Talal, who is mentally impaired. And what are you going to do? Now, this is such a delicate issue that when I went to Jordan and we had an Israeli guide, Israeli guides aren't so good. They're very good. Israeli guides are very good. But in talking about the Arab world, they, they haven't been through the whole process of understanding Arab culture. I'm not talking all guides, but, but some of them. And the particular guide we had was very good. He knew a lot about archaeology. He didn't really understand Arab society. And once on the bus, when our Arab guide, Armenian guide, was on the bus, he says what I've just said. Talal was mentally impaired. He said it in a cruder way. And I said to him, never say that in front of a Jordanian. You can tell it to a Jordanian as long as no one's listening. You can ask a question. How is it that it went from Abdullah to the grandson Hussein? You can say it like that. And then you'll get an answer, Talal wasn't feeling very well. But this is the reality. And you know, being in the Middle East, and we don't always do it well in Israel, we have to get into the mind of our neighbors. Because we can be in our own mind. Essentially, we're Eastern European Jews. That's who we are. Or Northern African Jews. Come from a different background. And it's very, very sensitive, these kind of issues. Anyway, the oldest son, the oldest grandson, the oldest son of Talal, the oldest grandson of Abdullah, is studying at Sandhurst. He's 18 years old. They bring him back. Two uncles are kind of running the country for a few years. Then King Hussein's very astute. And by 1953, until 1999, King Hussein runs the country. This man is remarkable. This whole idea of the cards you brought up with, you know, what, what's, what's the hand that your family gives you? This guy had almost nothing going for himself. Firstly, there's suspicion towards him because he isn't the, the direct son. Okay, he's the grandson. It's, 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 it's awkward. In Arab society until today, very, very hard to talk about the, the situation of Talal, of what Talal was and what he stood for. He's young. He's 18 years old. He's in some ways more British than the British. You know, people who come from British colonies want to be more British till, than the British until they go to London for the first time. Uh, there they are. So are we talking about the father of the present king? Thank you very much. So he, he, Hussein is the brother of Abdullah II. We'll come to him. Hussein, 1953, with the cards stacked against him, 
starts planning and realizes what, the, what he's really in, what he's found himself in, he has masses of problems. Jordan, like Saudi Arabia, is tribal. And we'll see, just as I get towards the end of my presentation, are we ending at three today? Is that what you said? The, as we, as we, uh, as, as we, we go along here, um, we are seeing that uh, King Hussein, with the card stacked against him, is under threat. Nasser attempted on many occasions to, um, to um, assassinate uh, King Hussein, number of occasions. So on the one hand, he's, he's being threatened by assassination. The other element is that the Palestinian population who had been refugees from Eretz Israel, who moved out of Eretz Israel as part of the Palestinian refugees, are a large number and quite well educated. The whole situation that King Hussein finds himself in is very problematic, and what's therefore happening is that he has to work out a new strategy. And his strategy is very, very clear. The Hashemites will control the security forces, except for the lower level soldiers, all the generals, all the officers, all the people in the intelligence units, all the uh, equivalent of the Mossad or the Shin Bet, the under, undercover organizations, all in the hands of the Hashemites. Public industry, industry which is national industry, in the hands of the Hashemites. What does he give to the Palestinians? The private sector. And Hussein deals with this whole issue, realizing just how delicate it is and how can we show it's delicate. Beginning of the 1970s, Black September. And Black September organization, the Palestinian organization, those Palestinians who claim that Jordan is Palestine, by the way, Arik Sharon said the same, and then it was no, 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 you can't do that. But the Palestinians themselves say, we are the majority in, in, in Transjordan. It's, it's, this is what we should have. We should have Israel as well. I mean, that's no doubt. But this is, our, this is Palestine. This is the whole area. This is Palestine of the Roman period. It's ours. So Black September organization um, uh, start uh, rebelling. Now, why does it happen? We have to backdate just for a little bit. Six-day war. And this makes this whole thing of Black September that much more difficult. Few words about the Six-Day War. Jordan didn't want to fight with Israel in the Six-Day War. Israel was the strange ally slash enemy who you could rely on, which Hussein believed you couldn't rely on any of the Arab countries around. And therefore what happens in the Six-Day War Hussein is sitting on the side. And Nasser turns to Hussein in a well-known phone conversation and says in very, very brutal Arabic, King Hussein, I'll tell you who you are. You are like a woman wearing a skirt. And if in Arab traditional society you want to insult anyone, which Israelis, by the way, use the expressions in Arabic as if it's going to, I don't give a, you know, sort of thing, expression, have no idea how this sounds when you say it 
seriously in Arab society. King Hussein realizes that his father already has the reputation of not being loyal to the Arabs. He was friendly with the Zionists. Here comes 1967, and the Arabs are all getting organized. The word on the street is that Israel is going to be wiped out. How can Israel survive? It's only 19 years old. And King Hussein very reluctantly joins the war on the Arab side to essentially be the Arab leader who lost most from the Six-Day War, the West Bank. West Bank is much nicer than East Bank. So the area that Jordan had actually controlled and saw itself controlling up to 1988, essentially, they always thought it was theirs, um, that's really what's happening as a result of the Six-Day War, many additional Palestinians moved into Jordan. Come the Black September organization of the early, 19, uh, early 1970s, the issue becomes the following. It's either us or them. King Hussein, who's got a history of knowing that he, there were many attempts to assassinate him, who remembers only too well, and he mentions on many occasions, he mourns the death of his grandfather, who he loved and had a close relationship with. He realizes that in the Middle East, you either win or lose, which is very hard for us from the Western world to appreciate. Because in our world, there's a peace treaty, the French and the Germans fought for many years and then signed a peace treaty, and the peace treaty is essentially held. Arab society looks at it somewhat differently. And therefore, in the Black September, where the Palestinians are starting to take over Jordan and stopping automobiles and searching people, it's a minute and a half away from a Palestinian takeover, and King Hussein, who is going to then be called the Butcher of Amman, the capital of Jordan, kills between eight and 20,000 Palestinians. So much so that many of the Palestinians leave Jordan and go over to Lebanon, where they will find it very, very tough in Lebanon at a later stage. This is the real politics of survival. It is this tough game that, quite honestly for myself, coming from my British background, it literally took me 10 years for my head to get around what I'm presenting to you now. It just was hard. I come from a kind of liberal leftist background, liberal leftist family, and suddenly I find myself in class situations telling some of the very, very harsh realities of the Middle East. But that's what it is. King Hussein went one step further, and I'm jumping history, 1994. He signs a peace agreement with, it, with Israel. Why does he do it? Remember when Sadat had signed a peace agreement with Israel, Egypt was in a harem. It was excommunicated from the Arab world. No one wanted to touch Egypt under Sadat. That's why the Egyptians felt there was no alternative but to assassinate uh, Sadat. And, and, he, and he knows, he, he, the king knows what's going on. And he knows that Egypt gained from the, the peace treaty. Egypt got back Sinai and Gaza. Egypt today receives Israeli gas. Israel, Israel, Egypt receives Israeli agricultural projects. 
a lot of stuff. Although the, the, the Egyptians are not happy, the Egyptian leadership understands it. King Hussein did the same thing. 1994, he signs a peace agreement with Israel. There was a limited exchange of territory, not, not much, northern area, little island, southern area near uh, Kibbutz uh, Lotan and Yahel, down in the south, not, not a lot of land. So it's an agreement with limited land change, which has now been turned on its head because the Jordanians have claimed back that agreement. It wasn't an agreement for all time. It was an agreement for a defined period of time. But Jordan believes that it, the gainers, Hussein uh, believes that the gainers on two levels. Firstly, he looked at tourism coming into Israel. Tourism, I don't know when you were there, if it was particularly impressive. Not a lot of tourism. Tourism is essentially two or three nights. How, you were there any longer? I doubt it. Uh, one night, two night, you know, that's the sort of thing. So the belief that they really thought the masses of people coming to Israel all the time, and that they saw them in Jerusalem. If they're coming to Jerusalem, bless you, coming to Jerusalem, they'll certainly come over the, the border and, and, and come and visit us in, in um, Jordan as well. The other is the water issue. Israel controls the water. After battles in the past of the headwaters of the, of the Jordan River, Israel firstly has water flowing through it on the Jordan River, and Israel has very important um, use of, of um, what's it called, dark water, or do you know, do you know what I mean? Uh, the re, reuse of, of water all the time. Grey water, sorry. <laughs> I knew it was something like that. Um, so he signs the agreement. Not to the satisfaction of his population. But what? For King Hussein, this is survival. 1999, he dies. And here we come to the last section. I'll just take two or three minutes. Abdallah II. Abdallah II is faced at the moment by problems which seem to make Jordan such a vulnerable society. What's going on? Major economic crisis. The whole of the Jordanian economy is based on either interest-based loans from the international bodies, International Monetary Fund, or free aid grants from Arab countries. Without that, Jordan couldn't survive. So its, it's, it's economy is a, is a zero economy. The national debt of Jordan is 96% of the annual GDP, which means that if you take all the money which Jordan gets in a year, 96% of that money should just go back to pay the loans. It's a totally non-viable society. Point number one. Point number two, every single time that the government has tried to develop a taxation system, it's often on things like bread subsidies, because bread subsidies are relatively easy to get money for. There are major riots. Riots and strikes going on in, in uh, Jordan are never ending. Next problem, the tribal structure, the large tribes which used to support the, uh, the monarchy are rebelling. The largest tribe of all is now saying, we don't believe in the monarchy anymore. 
the monarchy is anti-democratic and the monarchy is, is, is corrupt. Language which you would never hear in the past. You don't, didn't hear that kind of language years ago, certainly not during the period of King Hussein. How do they attack Abdullah II? Because it's still a little bit dangerous to attack the king. I mean, you, you're touching a narrow line. What do you actually do? You criticize the queen, Queen Rainier. And Queen Rainier uh, has a problem. She's of Palestinian background, very elegant. She apparently, according to Jordanian sources, travels the world and spends a vast amount of money on beautiful clothes, but I know other wives of leaders who spend a lot of money on beautiful clothes, but it's a different reality because Jordan doesn't have money. And so therefore the attack on the monarchy, where it cannot be done directly opposite the king, because you have to be pretty powerful to stand up against the king. Who knows what the secret service are gonna do? Be it as it may, the attack is against the woman. As a result of that, if you follow Jordania, if you follow the speeches of King Abdullah in the last year, and this is my second last comment, you find again and again that the monarchy is kacha, just not quite clear where it's going. It can get more money. Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, even Qatar, which is some on the, out on the limb instead in, in terms of that uh, group of uh, countries, very wealthy country, Qatar, uh, they're all providing money. Israel has given very, very little to the Jordanian economy based on their expectations. Israel never promised that we're gonna send the, all the tourists to Jordan. Jordan, people go where they want. We probably could have done a better job. But I wanna end off with a comment which I think says a great deal. And I identify with the comment. So I'm saying something not just as a, as a comment, but, but because I really do identify with it. An article which appeared a few months ago quotes Ephraim Halevi, uh, Israel's former head of the Mossad. Just a comment, by the way, many of the leaders of the Israeli security structure are left of center. So when there's a right of center person, the Likud party grabs that person and makes him or her very central. But when you look at the, when you look at the structure, you go through the top 20 security leaders at any time of the last 20 or 30 years, you see they left us kind of people. They want peace. You know, military people often want peace more than, than anyone else. Sometimes when I'm in America, people suggest that we go to war. They've got a at a particular Beit Knesset that I was, I had lunch there, and afterwards they were suggesting very, very clearly who we should fight with. And I said, well, who will do the fighting? He said, you, thank you very much. <laughs> great, great, you know, I'm so happy. You know, kids and grandkids, we'll fight for what you believe is a good idea. It's not so easy. Ephraim Halevi, and he's defined as Israel's former head of the Mossad, and chief Israeli architect of the 1994 Israel-Jordanian peace treaty recently said, I see great danger to the peace treaty, the 1994 peace treaty. I think that the danger comes not from the Jordanians, but from us, from Israel. 
Over the years, the Israeli governments have distanced themselves from Jordan. They've also demonstrated contempt towards Jordan, while Jordan's geopolitical situation has greatly worsened. But for Jordan, national security is more than counterterrorism, shared intelligence, and any other types of military coordination. Basically saying we have a lot of military coordination, but the national security, which includes how the local population think about Israel and the peace treaty, its economic stability, domestic social coherence, and some form of tra uh, trajectory towards resolving the Palestinian problem through a two-state solution. What, what does it come from? When Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu spoke about annexing the Jordan Valley area, he was basically saying this is the end of the two-state solution. It's another discussion what the two-state solution is about and what the implications. But from a Jordanian perspective, to do something which threatens Jordan by virtue of the fact that the Palestinian population in Jordan can never come to terms with the fact that they will never get a state. They spend their lives dreaming of not next year in Jerusalem as we used to think, but they've got their next year in Jerusalem. Possible or not? I don't know. But this is how we have to understand what's happening and what's going on at the moment. And Benny Gunn said exactly the same. The fact that the Israeli leadership, and maybe it's for internal political reasons. How do you win an Israeli election? You say certain things. Don't always implement them. But looking at just for a moment, which has been our goal today, to understand the side from the Jordanian perspective, what every time that one of our leaders speaks about any plan which means the non-existence of the two-state solution is not, such only, not only a threat to the Palestinians, but it's a total threat to the Jordanian government. And that is a pity because the Jordanians are our friends, and we think we've got lots of friends in the Middle East, but some of them are fair weather friends, and Jordanians, I think if we give them a chance, will be very good friends. Toda. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? I pass the mic over because I hear the echo all the time. So. You mentioned in the very beginning that this is your favorite topic to talk about. So could you just say why? Be because, you know, in, in my desire to get into the head of, to get into the heart of, I found it very, very difficult to empathize with some of the Arab countries. Just found it hard, and I want to. I mean, the social historian can't sit on the sidelines and be coldly academic. That isn't what it's really all about, although some people are like that. So the Jordanians, when I was there, we, we had a wonderful visit uh, to Jordan, and I had terrific discussions. Just let me give one little anecdote which had a tremendous effect. There was tension between Jordan and Israel when we went on this particular tour with Israelis. And... Um, <laughs> 
In, in the hotel where we were staying, the, um, I, I noticed something very interesting. I noticed everywhere we went, certain people were following us. So I said to one of the Jordanians who I happened to be chatting with, I'm one of those kind of people who chat a lot with people. Most people don't want to chat with me, but be it as it may, chatting with one of the Jordanians, and he was in the hotel there, and he was looking at us all the time, and we start talking, the Jordanian elite all speak English. My Arabic is terrible. So um, we're speaking to each other, and I said, I've got a question. Are we safe here as an Israeli group? You know, they all shout so loud in Hebrew as if we Marks and Spencers in London. <laughs> which means you shout from one side to the other, Rochana, are you buying double or three times what we're allowed? You know, this is kind of Israeli style. So there we are, we talk, making a lot of noise in this very nice hotel. And I'm speaking to this guy and I said, are we okay Israelis? And he said to me the something, which just was the Jordanian way of doing it. He said, you are totally safe. He said, as you go along, look around for who seems to be looking out for you. Just then we're going through the door, and the doorman obviously was not a doorman because he kept pushing the door the wrong direction. <laughs> he was one of, the, uh, one of their guys, one of the undercover guys. We're going down to the south, and we stop in a little village, and we dying to use the bathrooms and, and have something cold to drink. And out there is someone who'd obviously been standing, he was sweating, no cell, no cell phones uh, in that area, sweating outside, uh, waiting for us to come. So why is a guy obviously standing in the hot sun? Because he knew we were coming. And when we got to the south, wherever we went, people were standing as if they weren't looking at us. I mean, they wouldn't be very good undercover agents, kind of looking sort of through half an eye. I get, we get back to the hotel, and I say, tell me how the system works. And then he told me the truth, because I knew it to be true. There are particular Jordanian families which are part of the undercover. And in, in Jordanian society, every, once, once an important member is, a, is, is something, is defined as something, the whole family is responsible. So in our particular, some of the waiters were part of the family, and this non-dormant doorman was part of the family, and the guy down in the middle of the desert was part of the family, and that's how we knew we would be safe. And I thought that was interesting, because he told me what the truth, and I knew that was the truth. There is something warm about the Jordanians. There's something really warm, very dignified, very dignified, and their honor, and the way, if any of you have to meet a Jordanian who belongs to the monarchy, the best way of becoming that person's friend is to say, I understand your royal family is a direct relation of Muhammad. And then you get the best meal in town, I can assure you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Sorry, I, my answers are far too long. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about the unofficial trade that occurred between Israel and Jordan? Uh, the, the trade, there's direct trade now. Since 1994, there's direct trade, but there's also unofficial trade. Very quick, my anecdotes are too long. I'll give you the quick one. We went to a factory in Jordan where I was told it was a very interesting factory. We went into the factory and it had refrigerators, Israeli Amcor refrigerators. 
The guy in the factory says he loves Israel and Israelis, and I didn't understand why. His job was he brought, they brought Amcor refrigerators over the border, over the Jordan River. In the factory, his job was to hammer on the back of the refrigerator made in Jordan. And then he sent them on to Saudi Arabia. This guy loved Israelis. He invited us out for dinner, but we were busy that evening. But if I'm ever going back, I'm going to the factory. Sorry, yeah. You were listing all the problems that Abdullah found when he became king. Um, I've got national debt, tribal structure, attack on the monarchy. There was one other one. Um, and the lack of democracy, democracy and corruption of the monarchy. I'm trying to get a better picture of the population. You mentioned that a great percentage are Palestinians, so I assume that they were endemic to that area before the first Abdullah came. And of course, there's the tribe of Abdullah, which I assume came from Saudi Arabia over. Okay, Do we have any Jordanites that are not Palestinians? How much are the people that were that came over from Saudi Arabia from the original tribe of, uh, of the Hashemite uh, tribe. What percentage do we have there of each of these? Okay. Thanks, important. So, so what happens, when you have tribal groups moving, it is almost impossible to give a definite figure of numbers. The local population, who were called Palestinians, was tiny because it was a totally desolate kind of area. So when the Hashemites come over, remember the Hashemites are an extended family. So some thousands of people, okay? Some numbers of thousands of people, they coming over. They're these little, little villages of Palestinians who at that time don't think of themselves as Palestinians because remember this was the period of the Ottoman Empire, you know, th that's where they'd been, so they, they saw themselves as Arabs in many cases. This Palestinian identity develops a little bit later. So really what you have, you have the influx of the Hashemites. They, they're there. Then you have two waves of Palestinians coming in. Palestinians from 1948, the war with Israel, Palestinians from 1967, when Israel moved into the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, Palestinians once again, for a second time in many cases, refugees for a second time, move over to Jordan. So that's where you get it. Now the figures is very interesting. It is hard to say, the maximum figure is 70%. Some people say it's 65% and some say it's 55%. It's hard to know exactly. Um, Palestinians sometimes have even larger family than Jordanians. Now, just one other comment about the Palestinians. Not all Palestinians are isolated. There are Palestinian ministers in the Jordanian cabinet. In the most elite uh, mountain suburb, on the, on the, just look overlooking Amman, when you go up to that suburb and you ask who the population is there, the population is actually a mixed Palestinian Hashemite area because elite Arab groups form relations which are above the tribal identity because it's a form of, sorry, because it's a form of elitism. But, 
But as you go down into downtown Amman, uh, near the bus station, places like that, that's where you see the Palestinian population. So once again, without knowing, am I in the right place? Yeah. Good. So that is, so, so once again, without knowing the exact numbers, we know that the dominating group in 1922 were the Hashemites, and there were the villages all around without knowing the exact figure. A good colleague of mine, a good friend of mine, Asher Sasser, uh, who studies the issue, always says, I've asked him many times, he says we have to be very, very careful of the figures when we're talking about Jordan. And I'm going to answer your question in just one moment that you asked earlier. Okay, fine. Maybe I'll just come around this side. So, okay. Could you just pass? So, if, if, looking at kind of some of the things you said, if Israel wants to, have to see Jordan become more stable, what can it do? Because if they try to help it, it will destabilize it because the domestic Palestinian population will, you know, will react against that. And if they do nothing, it looks like it's not very stable and might collapse anyway because of the same thing. So what can they do? My 101 for understanding the situation is that stability is healthy. Stability is long-term planning. Instability is sometimes short-term gain, but long-term loss. So what would happen, look, if you keep Jordan stable, um, the Palestinian population in Jordan is relatively happy. If they have jobs, and things are okay for them, it's good. That means the Palestinian problem, which is a very complex problem because Palestinians exist in all the areas, at least the Palestinians in Jordan, a very large, significant number, they can somehow or other, not in their heads, but in their day-to-day -day reality, can carry on living in Jordan and say this is okay. Other Palestinians will talk about um, Israel collapsing. So, so that, is what, that is what is good. Another message, if Jordan is stable, and there were one case when the Syrians were about to attack Israel, four days later, the Israelis warned the Syrians and they turned the tanks, I think I mentioned it. Um, the message to Arab countries, from, from my perspective, what Israel has to do is to show that we're reliable neighbors. In a world of uh, chaos, stability and, and countries which are sensitive to the neighbors become very, very good partners. See, in the Middle East, it's hard to trust your neighbors. And if we become a trusted neighbor, it's good. My very last comment, you asked me a very important question. Why in the text that I handed out, there's no bibliography? The answer is that when I was looking for a suitable text, I just couldn't find one. I found the text, but I couldn't find the bibliography. So the one text that I have is there. Some of it covers the material I'm talking about. But in terms of what you mentioned, the bibliography, 
There's a lot of stuff that was written about 10, 15 years ago. The modern stuff are all kind of newspaper journal articles of one kind or the other. If you know memory, M-E-M-R-I, I use memory a great deal, but none of it is kind of the solid analytical stuff. So that is really why I just had to rely on the one article uh, which would seem to be a good one. Thank you for joining me in the Middle East series. So thank you all. If anybody has a question about our Israel trip in October or CSP legacy, I'll be here just a bit cleaning up. And um, my guess about Israel is that there's probably a lot of secret stuff we don't know about in which they're helping the Jordanians because of the issue that Howard brought up. But I say it as a guess. I don't know. Thank you all. See you uh, this weekend. <laughs>